This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. We came within two or three weeks of closing that store in Pitt Street because it was losing money. Through a process of empowering the store manager, that store went from $3 million of turnover in 2012 to 2015, it turned over $10 million. If you asked Shannon, the store manager, she'd tell you that we empowered her to make decisions and we got the hell out of the way. That's the voice of Brian Winther. He's the managing director of Pandora Jewelry in the United Kingdom. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. And I'm Michael Momsen. How are you today, Adam? Very excited about today's chat. Brian has a wealth of experience working in senior leadership roles at brands like JR Duty Free, Dick Smith Electronics and Colorado. And of course, more recently, he was the president of Pandora Jewelry in Australia before taking on his more recent role of managing director of Pandora Jewelry in the United Kingdom. And Pandora Jewelry is such an iconic brand. We have two big topics we're talking about today. Firstly, we dive into a discussion about the Pandora bracelet charms and uh, how personalization of their product line has helped build Pandora to the brand that it is today. And secondly, we talk about the huge queues that Pandora experiences at Christmas time and Valentine's Day um, every single year and how the brand manages them. Does Brian see it as a good thing? But as usual, we started our conversation by asking Brian to tell us the best customer experience he's had recently. Uh, visiting Manchester, the store was up there with my wife and we went to a a little wine bar, tapas bar in Manchester that we stumbled across. The girl serving us was just unbelievable. You know, there was nothing special about the place. The food was okay, but we walked out there thinking, my God, I'd go back there tomorrow. It was her attention to detail and her ability to engage with us as customers that really made the difference. And, of course, we had to ask her about that because she was so good at what she was doing. Turns out that she and her brother had just started the bar. You know, she was clearly wanting to create a great impression. Yeah, did you offer a job? <laughs> I, I, actually, I, I, I was going to offer a job and then I realised she owned the bar. So what I did was actually gave, <laughs> I gave her my business card and we, we exchanged nice. business cards because I'm going to use her uh, for catering when we go to Manchester. Oh, fantastic. Can we maybe ask about the, the worst customer experience that you've had recently that comes to mind? Yeah. You can take the brand out of it if you like. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. but um, No, that's fine. Uh, I study supermarkets a lot because I think they're an interesting part of the retail business because their strategies are on show for everybody. So the only difference is how they execute their strategy. Struggled up here over the last two or three years and I walk into their stores and I don't wonder why because their customer service is appalling but more so their culture of their staff. You know, one of the indicators that I... I look at in supermarkets is whether the staff walk past fridge doors that are opened and close them and no one in closes the fridge doors so they don't care yeah, no care factor zero and of course that flows through to when you ask questions that flows through to when they stock their shelves that flows through to everything that you do you know my wife and i play a game going can we get a good experience at and so far we've failed <laughs> no bingos yet i suppose some would have the view that it's really just range and price and convenience and keep the lines short and just pump it out the door. It's interesting that you're really zeroing in on the people aspect. Regardless of the type of retail you're in, the culture that's in the store dictates the consumer experience. 
they seem to stack shelves at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning when people are busy. You know, they, they just Crazy. don't seem to understand the consumer. Supermarkets are much more supply chain than they are perhaps consumer experience, but sure. the little things make a difference. But culturally, you can see in people don't want to be there or they don't care about the business. In a previous uh, episode, we spoke to someone who specializes in understanding employee engagement, and he actually made a controversial statement, which was you can't have any kind of customer centricity or great customer experience unless you have people first in terms of your employees and you're, you're starting there. That is almost the foundation. That's quite interesting. You're right. Like the guys in store, like if that care factor is not there and they can't have the care factor if they don't feel engaged and valued uh, as employees. I don't think that's controversial at all. I think that's a fundamental of retail. You cannot deliver a good consumer experience unless you give a great employee experience. Mm. It's not possible. You know, and that goes to how well you treat your employees, but, you know, the back room in retail stores, it's the benefits you add, it's how you treat them. Love that. All right, we're hitting the bombshells of knowledge already. We have barely even started. <laughs> so, the first topic that we want to talk about is product personalization. I think a lot of Pandora's notoriety and, and fame and success have actually stemmed from the popularity of the, the Pandora charm bracelets. You know, when you think of Pandora, it's almost synonymous that that's kind of part of the brand. Um, but Pandora was first to this kind of uh, trend of customization and personalization. We're seeing that happen a lot actually in the industry at the moment. You know, Nike's doing it. A number of other brands are trying to build personalization strategies. Um, but Pandora was really one of the first to do this. In what ways do you think that the charm bracelets were key to the success of Pandora? The first part of that answer is they're absolutely key to the success of Pandora from the beginning because that's what we built our business on. And if you go back five or six years, 80 85% of our revenue came from charms and bracelets. There's no question about the, what was the success of the business. And I think the starting point for that was, you know, our tagline was unforgettable moments. What it did was make a connection to the consumer, an emotional connection to the consumer that connected to either their birthday, a, a birth, a death, a, a significant moment uh, in that person's life. And because the, char- the bracelet is a carrier, you can continue to add unforgettable moments to that carrier. You know, a lot of our consumers talk about the, their charms in terms of events the emotional connection that that event has with their lives. So that builds the personalization and the personalization comes from the consumer themselves, not from us. Mm. And I think that's a significant difference to our business is that we're not saying what you should wear and why you should wear it or whether it suits you. The consumer's saying, I want to buy that charm because it represents the birth of my second child or it represents my second anniversary. So the personalization comes from within rather than without or outside. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's it's like very people build at such an emotional attachment so powerful to this thing, yeah. Was that by design? Was that intentional? You know, I'm not sure uh, when Pierre created the bracelet and charm whether he thought that that's what would happen. Certainly uh, the design the design went down that path and you know you know, some of the best inventions are created by accident. So, you know, I'm not sure it was designed that way, but it certainly evolved that way very quickly. And what's it like selling a product as intimate as that? Because you're actually, like you said, you're bringing to life and celebrating these moments or um, marking the significance of these moments. What That sales process is very different to 
selling a nice to have, um, you know, or s- some other type of product which maybe they don't need. Like, and th- this is this is very personal. This is very intimate. H- how do you go about selling that? You employ fans of the brand who understand the heritage of the brand. Our store teams need to, but also want to create an emotional connection to people. And uh, a lot of our sales, and, and if you talk to a lot of our team members, the sale process becomes very emotional. Have you got any examples of where that's really come to life? Because Pandora is now at a, at a stage where the brand is big enough to draw that in. But I'm sure in the early days of when you started at Pandora, maybe you couldn't just put a job ad up with the Pandora logo and attract the fans. How do you go about hiring great people that do have that strong brand connection, that believe what you believe? You would be amazed, Michael, how many people who want to work in our stores start off with, I love the brand. Right. I think that's one of our challenges as a business as we get bigger is how do we continue that? But if you went in and interviewed, you know, let's say uh, 100 store managers in the Australian marketplace, they'd all tell you, I started working for Pandora because I love the brand. You know, and so they are our customers. Now, it gets harder as you get bigger. Uh, you know, I was with a group of store managers yesterday, 20 store managers, and they're all just fans of the brand. They love it. I mean, the passion and commitment that our teams have are just amazing. It's one of the things I love about the, working for the brand so much is that you you talk to people who just love it. Some of these charms are limited edition. You know, they're limited run, they're time bound in which you can actually buy them or they're geographically bound. You know, you can only buy certain ones in Paris, for example, or or at Disneyland or whatever. What's the kind of thought process behind that? Because you're creating artificial scarcity. Like you don't have to necessarily do that. The regional charms that are developed are specifically for customers in that particular region. They actually don't sell in other parts of the world. So, you know, one of the best-selling charms in Australia is the Sydney Opera House, mm. and it sells in its thousands. Wow. And you can only buy it in Australia? Uh, yeah. If we put it into the UK, you wouldn't sell it. <laughs> you know, one of the best-selling charms in the UK, particularly around London, is our London bus, the double-decker bus. But Germany can't sell it. <laughs> they don't sell any. One of the best-selling charms in New Zealand is the Kiwi. Yeah, <laughs> but it wouldn't sell anywhere else the limited edition charms tend to be around events or promotions they're used to create a demand but they're also you know as you said used to create some exclusivity and some scarcity that drive a sense of urgency pandora is now the world's third largest jewelry company in terms of gross sales just after cartier and tiffany which are you know mega brands actually how do you think about Pandora going toe-to-toe and competing with Cartier and Tiffany on a service level? I don't. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yeah. Explain. <laughs> well, and the first thing is we operate in a completely different price point. You know, our business is built around affordable luxury and we are squarely in the heartland of both the Australian market and the UK market. People buy our product because it's exceptionally high quality, but it's also affordable. Yes. And they may dream of walking into a Tiffany store or a Cartier store, but most of the people who buy from us are buying because they can afford it mm-hmm. and it represents a luxury purchase for them. Uh, and in terms of competing with service, I, I don't ever think about competing with service with competitors. I, all I worry about is what's the experience our consumer is getting in our stores. Our, our competitors, particularly in the, say in the Australian market, is much more around Michael Hill uh, and that particular business. 
whilst we are the third uh, largest, you know, I, I don't see that Tiffany and Cartier are our, our competitors. And people who work for Tiffany and Cartier wouldn't want to work for us, and people who work for us probably wouldn't want to work for them. You know, it's a different consumer and a different experience and a different product. So how do you think about that service level then? I know every time I've walked into a Pandora store with my daughters or with my wife, uh, we're always actually amazed that the service level is actually, I think, a standard or two above your expectations relative to the price band of the product. So you've done an exceptional job around delivering on that. And it makes sense, the answer, in terms of saying, look, we're not competing with Tiffany in, in service. And of course, they're spending multiple thousands of dollars as opposed to multiple hundreds of dollars. So, you know, the, the experience um, is is always going to be a bit different. But how, how do you then think about it? Because, I mean, the way that Pandora has executed there has been excellent. You've got to think about the consumer experience in terms of each individual customer. And we've made some mistakes around that consumer experience over the last couple of years, and I think we're fixing some of those mistakes. But, but it comes back to what I said before. You've got to engage with your customer and find out what they are there for. You know, people walk into jewellery stores for a reason, and once you can find out that reason, uh, you can engage with them and, and you can show them what they came in for. You know, one of the first questions we should always ask, you know, is it, is it for yourself or is it for a gift? And then who are you gifting? Why are you gifting? What's the purpose? And they're questions that can get that emotional engagement going fairly quickly. Brian, you talked about making uh, some mistakes in, in terms of, you know, building experiences. Can you tell us a story about what some of those are? Pandora started off as a wholesale business. And in a lot of places, we still have a wholesale mentality. And a wholesale business operates and runs very differently to a retail business. And so we developed processes to give to our retailers in terms of how to go about selling our product. And some of that stuff was good. However, you know, over the last two or three years, what we've realised is our selling became a process as opposed to an engagement. And so over the last 12 months, what we've been saying to our store managers is, you decide the culture in your store. You decide how you want to go about selling to people. We'll give you some selling skills to help you. And you decide how you want to engage with your teams. So we're not going to tell you how to do that stuff. Because the culture in your store is your responsibility, particularly in specialty retail. The very good specialty retailers around the world understand that the store manager is the most influential person in retail. In some ways, you've got to let go of that power and control and say to your store managers, you look after the customer. We trust you. There's such an amazing quote. Selling is not a process, but it's an engagement. And then the empowerment for your store managers how do you practically do that? Because if you let that go completely wild, then you can lose some brand control, you could lose some process control. I'd love to hear some examples of where that flourishes really well and maybe where it hasn't gone as well and you've had to sort of correct it. Well, the first question you've got to ask yourself is what's the worst thing that can happen? <laughs> it's my favorite question. I ask it a lot. <laughs> when you really think about that, there's not a lot of worse things that can happen best thing that can happen is the store manager feels fabulous about coming to work. They feel as if it's their store and they feel like they can make decisions and they develop great teams and they develop great stores. Our Pitt Street store in Sydney is the best example I've ever seen of empowering a store manager and then watching what happens. Uh, in 2012, we came within two or three weeks of closing that store in Pitt Street because it was losing money. Couldn't work out what to do. So we went to the, the store manager and the, and the regional sales manager and said, you know, what are we going to do? And through a process of, of empowering the store manager 
and finding out and truly listening to her and really understanding and believing her and then letting go of a lot of control that we thought we were doing the right thing by. Uh, that store, you know, it, it went from $3 million of turnover in 2012 to 2015, it turned over $10 million. Holy moly. It continues to grow. That's incredible. You know, if you asked Shannon, the store manager, you know, what were the one or two things that we did differently? She'd tell you that we empowered her to make decisions and we got the hell out of the way. <laughs> what is that empowerment? Like what is within their control when you do hand over the reins and say, okay, you're in charge, you know best, you know your area, you know your store, you know your team. Uh, like what, what are those levers that they start pulling? Well, the first thing is Shannon said to us, I'm really good at being on the SARS floor. I want to be on the SARS floor all the time. You're making me go into the back office to do administrative stuff. Give me some support. I don't want to be doing that. So, you know, we put more people into her back office area. It's a big volume store. So what we did was we separated operational staff from sales staff. And so we actually started to treat it like a supermarket. We did out-of-hours deliveries. We did out-of-hours recovery to the store. Um, and so when the salespeople walked in to sell, start selling, that's all they had to worry about. So they didn't have to worry about anything else. They walked in and went, okay, I'm here to sell. The other thing we did was we stopped making heroes of people. Now, there was a real culture in the business of within our stores of, oh, I've worked an extra two hours today. I'm going to work 10 hours tomorrow. And we said, there's no heroes in retail. If you're on for a six-hour shift, you start at the time, you finish at the time and you go home. It doesn't matter what the state of the store is, you go home. Instead of having people coming in, particularly around Christmas and busy periods of time, day after day, and they were exhausted, they're coming in refreshed. We recovered the store out of hours. If you were here for sales, that's all you had to do. When you came in to do the recovery shifts, that's all you had to do. So real clarity of role and real focus on what was important. You know, those sorts of things mean that the people who are there for selling can do their job. Has this become a bit of a case study for other stores? It sounds like a really successful example. I, I use it all the time. And I think, you know, it, it formed the basis of a lot of my beliefs around uh, how Pandora should run. The fundamental thing about our business is that our store managers have to be the sales leader. We run 50 square metre stores, 60 square metre stores. And if your store manager is not out on the sales floor, they don't know what the consumer experience is, and they're not coaching their teams on how to sell. You know, that was one of the real lessons uh, that we took from Pitt Street. When you had someone who wanted to be on the sales floor, the success they can drive is quite amazing. When you listen to your teams and they tell you we need to do X, Y, and Z to, to be successful, and then you believe them, then that's the sort of stuff that can happen. Aren't you afraid of the, the brand becoming out of control? Why? You've got people that you're empowering at the ground level, and I guess they have an idea of what the Pandora brand is about, but my gut instinct would tell me as, a, as somebody who's in charge of marketing, you'd want to have control over the, the comms that go out, the culture that's, that's being presented in store. And- we definitely have that. I mean, the, the, the marketing direction is dictated by us. You know, the visual merchandising, we create the umbrella under which the Pandora brand operates. What we're doing is empowering the store managers at an operational level to, to decide the consumer experience they want to deliver. So the product is the same. The marketing is the same. The VM is the same. Our teams wear black. That's our, the colour of our uniform. But we don't need a corporate uniform. We just need people to look good and wear black. And when you say that to people, you know, they feel better. Mm. 
you know, because, you know, people who decide that they're going to have corporate uniforms, corporate uniforms don't fit all shapes and all sizes. And so when you make people feel uncomfortable because they're wearing a top or a jacket that doesn't fit them properly, they don't feel engaged. So true. I mean, it's such a relatively small detail in the scheme of things, but it's so important because that's how I feel and it's the pride that I come to work, my place, the people, and that energy and that, uh, you know, how I feel will then show up in how I engage with customers, which will show up in the sales numbers, right? <laughs> and, and Michael, it's not a small thing. It's a huge issue. You need to make sure that in every element, you're thinking about whether that team member feels okay. Now, if you go to the back rooms of a lot of retail stores, the back rooms look like rubbish tips. They're horrible. And so how do you feel walking into your workplace knowing that you're going to be in the back room that is not a comfortable environment? And retailers generally make sure that they maximise the selling area of their store to maximise revenue, but they forget about the fact that their teams are sitting out the back room and feeling like... um, you don't have to say shit. <laughs> this is a swearing podcast. You're allowed, you're allowed to say shit. <laughs> well, they feel like shit. <laughs> there we go. How do you expect someone to walk out of that back room onto the sales floor feeling great to give a great consumer experience when they're freezing their butt out at the back because there's no heater? Brian, we're going to go into a quick fire round. We like to, we like to have a bit of fun on the show. Uh, and so, we've got some questions coming up. I'm going to give you 10 seconds each to answer them. So, your time starts at the end of the first question. You ready? Who is your personal mentor? Uh, David Allen, who's the EMEA president for Pandora. He and I have known each other for 25, 26 years. He's worked for me three or four times and now I've worked with him twice. So, we've swapped roles uh, and we have a great relationship. Fascinating. Fantastic. Oh, you, you really packed that into 10 seconds. I love it. <laughs> what brand do you look up to? Uh, T2. What job did you learn the most at? <laughs> uh, when I was a teacher. Yeah, interesting. What skill or skills are you terrible at? Uh, drawing and singing. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky that none of those are related to <laughs> what you do. <laughs> Brian, what is your dream job? I have it. Nice. Ooh, nice, nice. Like that. Uh, favorite hobby or hobbies outside of work? Uh, mountain bike riding. Can you do that in the UK? Yeah, we have mountains. <laughs> what irrational fear do you have? Snakes. Then you've made a good move, haven't you, away from Australia? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Chocolate. Mm, me too. If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with all the extra time? I don't sleep. Um, no, uh, <laughs> it is it is six a.m. Uh, recording this, so uh, I I would probably go back to university. Uh, what's the hardest lesson that you've learned? You don't always get what you want. Oh my gosh, I'm teaching that to my five year old right now. It's it's a painful lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you ever learned it actually. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about managing a brand that is extremely popular, like Pandora. We, we see this every year around Christmas time, uh, the lead up to Mother's Day, the lead up to Valentine's Day. Pandora is an extremely popular brand uh, at, at those occasions, and we see queues out, you know, at the door. <laughs> Do you see uh, people queuing for Pandora stores as a good thing? No, I hate it. Really? That's fascinating. I hate it with a passion. 
because it's a lousy experience. The first time you see it, your ego goes, oh, that's, that's great. You realise that that's just lousy. Because what the queue does is it treats everyone the same. So the person is at the front of the queue, 10th in the queue, 20th in the queue. We don't know what they're there for. And so everyone's treated the same. And what we need to do is work out how we can find out whether Michael, who's 10th in the queue, just wants to buy a gift card. Or Adam, who's 15th in the queue, wants to buy a gift. He's got no clue why he's there. He's just been sent to Pandora to buy a gift. And and Sounds familiar. <laughs> we should be able to segment our customers much better and much more quickly. And if you just want to buy a gift that's prepackaged, that's a particular price point, we should be able to transact that in one or two minutes as opposed to personalised shopping, which requires a much longer time frame. It's probably one of the top four or five things that occupies my mind is how do we reduce the length of that queue and improve the consumer experience, particularly around Christmas time. I'd love to hear um, where you have seen great queue management because I'm sure there's all sorts of things that you can try to do. You know, Disney parks have VIP express lanes. There's come back at certain times. There's, I suppose, some, some digital uh, queuing things. Maybe there's a concierge, like you said, that goes throughout and tries to classify what are some things that you've seen work great and, and what are maybe some things that you're trialling that you're seeing working well? I mean, the Apple experience is probably the, you know, the, the one that you see the most of and I think it works pretty well. Um, we're trialling a similar one uh, in the UK at the moment across six stores where we're booking customers in. Again, it has to change your mindset because you have to have a host on the front door the whole time and that's a difficult operational thing to change because people feel the urge to go and serve customers as opposed to host customers. So you need to sort of get that balance. You know, one of the problems with a queue for our business is no one browses the store. Mm. The, the only thing that they buy is what they came in to buy. Uh, the guy who runs the Italian business has been testing a ticket machine. You walk in and you take a ticket. Now, it sounds very delicatessen-like. <laughs> In its yeah, nature. It does, it does. You browse in the meantime and then they call your number and then you get you get personal service. <laughs> Bingo. My immediate <laughs> response was, that's terrible. And the consumer's response is, that's fabulous. So I'm wrong, yeah. they're right. And they're enjoying it. And Massimo, who's the MD of Italy, says it's working really well. People are browsing the store. They're okay with taking a ticket. What I've got to do is make sure that I don't create my own biases, determine what a consumer wants. One of the things that um, Q research, and that's like a field of study, brings up is that people don't actually really mind waiting if there's, you know, the expectation is set correctly. But the thing that people really get pissed off about is if uh, a queue is unequal, if, if somebody who arrives after them gets served before them. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that we introduce queues is because people uh, would harass our staff and they wouldn't know when they're going to get served. And that created more anger because people were being served before, you know, it, it, not in order. So the queue creates a sense of order um, and, you know, we, we try and manage that queue as well as we can. Uh, but, again, I don't think it's a good consumer experience. Now, I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where we don't have queues. However, if you can minimise the queue, and as I said, if you, can, if you can find out whether someone wants to be in the queue to buy a gift, which is only going to take two minutes, then that's a better experience. Um, you said there's queues are one of four or five things that occupy your mind. Um, what are the other things that are keeping you up at night? Team engagement. This whole concept of our store managers being the most influential piece, people in the business 
and for everyone in the organisation to understand that. You know, one of the guys who had probably the biggest influence on my retail beliefs is a guy called Jim Harrington who came from the US and, and ran a large footwear company in Australia that I work for. And he taught us about rolling the red carpet out. And, you know, his view of the world was when regional sales managers or area managers came into head office, you rolled the red carpet out because they were the guys on the ground. Like when that. store managers came into the office, you rolled the red carpet out because they're the most important people are going around. And, you know, I think culturally what we need to do as an organisation is to have everyone understand that everything passes through the hands of a store manager. You know, we talk about brand ambassadors and bloggers and influencers and PR and marketing. And the best brand ambassadors we've got is our store managers and our store teams. And so you need to treat them like that. You know, it's that thing about in retail, if you're not serving a paying customer, you better be serving someone who is. You know, that probably occupies a lot of my time in terms of how do I make sure that we're thinking about that all of the time. Other than Pandora, who do you think is executing retail really well? T2 is a brand that I admire a lot because of the way that they go about providing a consumer experience. Um, you know, and I've been into a lot of T2 stores in Australia and I've been into a couple in London and they're the same. They're really good. And you walk in there and you get a great experience around the product that they sell and they've clearly got passionate teams. And I think any retailer who is focusing on providing a great experience is going to do okay. I mean, if you ask people about a great shopping experience, they never tell you about the product or the price, ever. So true. They tell yeah. you about the experience they had. And yep. the product or the price might get mentioned after two or three minutes, but it's, it's never. And if you ask someone about a bad consumer experience or a bad shopping experience, it's rarely about the product. You know, from time to time, people understand that they're going to buy a product that broke or it wasn't fit for purpose. And so that doesn't create the anger. What creates the anger is how they're dealt with. Mm. We can forgive mistakes uh, as long as they're dealt with in a human way. Um, and remembering that, I mean, you said it uh, earlier on, Brian, every experience is an individual person. You know, this empowerment of our store managers is, you know, I hate customer service policies. I, I hate them with a passion because they're typically written by someone who doesn't work in a store. What you've got to do is empower the store manager to make a decision to look after the customer and then support them because there's nothing worse than a customer walking in and the store manager or someone going, oh, I'll have to contact head office for that. We as an organisation really, really push the fact that the store manager can make a decision and we will support that decision regardless of, of what that decision is. That's fantastic. I love that. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. What an excellent show with Brian. Fantastic conversation. Yes. So, this is our debrief section where Adam and I attempt to take the key takeaways. We want to make sure we leave you with some practical tips. So, I, as usual, have three or four pages of notes here. So, Adam, what have you got for me? What's one of your, your takeaways? So, I kind of came into this interview um, with a couple of big questions that I was just really curious about. One of those was about uh, the Pandora Charm bracelets and, and right. how that's kind of really, you know, been the core of their business and, and growing it. But I wanted to kind of get Brian's kind of customer experience takeaway from it. And, um, and he really delivered on that because... 
what I didn't realize was um, that the, the charms were really, uh, whether it was intentional or not, they were really closely linked with this idea of unforgettable moments. Yes. Um, the, the brand purpose of Pandora. And I guess like the, the repercussion of that is that because people are buying these charms to represent significant life events, it forms a, a super emotional moment. And, and the product is more than just a physical thing then. It's actually an emotional attachment that you form with it. And so, it makes the brand and, and the brand promise and also that experience super duper sticky. They're not selling a charm. They're selling a memory. Yeah, there we go. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> well, we're sounding like a Pandora ad. Then I just need to insert some nice music and say unforgettable moments. Um, that, that's, <laughs> that's really good. So, look, the one that I had that stood out, I mean, I really, really love this quote where he said, if you ask people about a great experience, which we did, and it, for him it was that moment at the pub, and what I actually found quite interesting in what he said was the food wasn't that particularly good, but it came across as the best experience that he's had all year because of the person, right? So the, and, and so his quote that I wrote down was, if you ask about a great experience, it's rarely the product or the price. It's yes. the engagement that you have. And I think we all obsess about our product. We all obsess about our price. Yep. And I'd even add another one in there. And I would say it's not your product, price or policies um, or procedures because quite often we, we think about those being the ways that we can delight. The people is such an anchor to the experience. And yeah. the story that he shared about the Sydney store going from like 3 million revenue, losing money to like 10 million revenue, it was all people. Um, and that for me is just such a great reminder how people really are the foundation to these great experiences that we have. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. The other one that I had was uh, was when we talked about cues. Yeah, this was interesting. I wasn't expecting Brian to come back and say he hates the cues. It was such a visceral no as well. Like I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was a bit taken aback at that moment, but like he was seeing things actually not from the brand's perspective where he gets kind of an ego moment of like, oh, we're so popular. He took it from the customer's perspective and he was like, this sucks. Like, I've got to wait in a queue and I can't, like, engage with the product. It's, it was a bit of a subtle takeaway, um, but it was it was about, I guess, like, one, recognizing that. And then, two, it was about figuring out, like, ways to overcome that. And so, they're doing some things about recognizing different customer types so that they can serve them better and some a lot quicker. And also, like, I really like the story about the stores in Italy and, and how they're actually, you know, it seems a bit weird to be giving out, like, um, you know, deli tickets for, for customers to <laughs> go in and like queue like within the store but being able to browse um, the store forms a critical part of the jewelry shopping experience right um, is is really really critical and having people outside the store um, waiting in a queue prohibits them from doing that the other takeaway that I had was this concept of practical empowerment and genuinely caring or ensuring that your staff genuinely care because we all hear the word empowerment so often and sometimes it comes across as one particular process or one decision. So therefore, we've empowered our team. But for Brian, it was really at the heart of everything in how they execute. And so it was showing up from everything to having the back room, staff being able to like wear the clothes that they want to wear and they're not going to like micromanage that. You know, here's a guy who's the managing director of Pandora UK and he says, I hate customer service policies. Head office yep. people love policies. Like, what's going on there? And it's because yeah. there's this care factor of having these things getting in the way of great customer experience because they're not not empowered. That shows up as they 
genuinely care. And so there was this quote that he had, which is, if you decide the culture, then you decide how you sell. And I haven't really seen that high level of genuine uh, practical empowerment from a head office down. And then I think that shows up and we see it in the results. I mean, that story was so powerful of the the Pitt Street store from three mil to 10 mil. Yeah. And I was actually surprised by how much he was willing to let go and, and let that empowerment be driven from his sales staff and his store managers. So, uh, Mm. that shows a really great amount of trust and a great kind of internal culture. Why don't we wrap it up there? Uh, So, your two takeaways, Adam, were? Recognizing and maybe trying to build in ways for your product to have emotional connections. Yeah, nice. And then secondly, um, we talked about Q theory and, and, you know, how Brian thought that that was actually a negative thing. The resolution is about managing expectations and, and helping people to move through that journey quicker. And for me, it was about how people are intrinsically linked to the experience that you have and this practical empowerment, which then is linked to staff feeling like they genuinely care. Yeah, it's really people, people, people and people. (laughs) Great. So, with that, uh, another fantastic show. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, thanks, Michael. If uh, if you're listening and you have uh, any feedback that you want to offer us, um, if you had a different takeaway to the one that we had, uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, please send us an email. We will personally respond. Um, you can email me on adam at wavelength.audio. And I'm michael at rateitapp.com. Great. Thanks so much. We'll speak to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is a co-production of Rate It, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback, and Wavelength, podcasting strategy and execution. This episode was produced by Nick Jones and me, Adam Jaffrey. It was edited and mixed by Josh Armour from ArmorPod Productions, and our theme music was by Icolix and Peter Cooley. If you liked this interview today, please subscribe to Customer Experience Letters on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review because it really helps out a lot. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Thank you so much for listening. We produce Customer Experience Letters every fortnight, so we'll speak to you in two weeks. Two weeks.